This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it a, is. But it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams, other than a Viewmaster. You download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. Yeah. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love Trexpert's Briefing Room, a Trexpert's new series. Briefing Room? What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I'm it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind-the-scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you can find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts Briefing podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see what's out there. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And have we got a show for you. We have a great guest today. Winter um, is coming. 
winter is coming <laughs> yes winter is coming and uh we have uh the, he was uh associate producer on star trek three he was a producer on star trek four five and six he would have been a producer probably the creator of um the academy years he's gone on to tremendous success uh with films like x-men and x-men 2 and uh the fantastic four duopoly and uh, a bunch of other stuff but it's funny because um i had been on my peloton before the podcast and I was exhausted. And I have to be honest, I really wasn't looking forward to recording today's show. How I was really, <laughs> I was really, I was exhausted. I was really tired. I was like, I was not feeling it. I was like, oh, I can't believe we got to do a Trexperts now. But, you know, we had, we, it was all set and we scheduled. And I'm like, well, well you know, I'm, you know you what? Know, duty Mark, calls. Things are tough all over. I had my COVID inoculation today. So oh my God, we're not feeling we're not feeling great. But oh my, I I, is, I, I totally understand. Be fun. <laughs> can I can I just can I tell you because I, I did I was a guest on actually one of our listeners' podcasts uh, last week right after I got inoculated for COVID as well um, on their James Bond podcast. Uh, yeah. We talked about Doctor No, and I had the same thing happen. I got the shot that day, and as I was doing the podcast, I was yeah, feeling just worse and worse. <laughs> And they were doing this whole run through Dr. No. And finally, like, there was like, I don't know, there were th three quarters away. And I just explained the plot to Dr. No in like five minutes, five seconds. I, and then this happens and then Bond does this. And then, and then, and then, you know, he has the thing with Dr. No and it blows up and the movie's over. Great movie. Guys, thanks for having me. And I was like, I gotta I, get out like, of here. I, I was just like, I was, I was dying. I mean, it was like, I was feeling so worn down oh, and my arm was killing me. And I just had to go. And it's just like, and they were very understanding. I explained to them, I said, look, I just got my shot, my first Moderna shot today. And, um, you know, I'm sure I'll be great tomorrow, but you just did the wrong day to record a podcast. <laughs> so I feel your pain. Wrong and, day to stop sniffing and blue. <laughs> I'm really glad though. Which, which, uh, which uh, vaccine did you get? I got the Johnson and Johnson. Great. So, so you're and, done. One and done. And done. You still have no no vaccine and no lieutenant. And no Yar. lieutenant Yar. <laughs> <laughs> no more vaccine and no more lieutenant Yar. Um, but yeah. So anyway, um, you are in for a, tr a real treat. I know we say that a lot, but we've had a couple of really great episodes lately. Robin Curtis was terrific. Eddie Egan returns was great. Um, so many great. I thought the Babylon Five episode with Mojo was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm really I'm really pleased with the, with the show. Um, and I, I, I've rarely been more pleased than this interview with, uh, with Ralph Winter, who I think, I think the last time I interviewed him was for Cinefantastic when wow. Star Trek VI came out, because I know Ed interviewed him for 50 year mission. I didn't, I didn't talk to him, right. but, um, you know, I think the last time I talked to him was for Star Trek VI back in, uh, you know, back in the day. And I, you know, I always tell, tell you that story and it's true that, you know, I interviewed Harv, uh, you know, for that issue, and it was uh, that night I get a call my answering machine. This is how long ago it was. And he says, listen, uh, I don't know. I guess you probably heard that Gene died. Uh, we really should talk about some of the things I said in my interview before you publish it. <laughs> That's why I always have such fond memories of Harv. Anyway. Well, as, as, we, like to, uh, as we like to say on, on Trexperts, we pride ourselves on bringing in people that you don't usually hear from. And Ralph Winter is one of those people. Yeah. And just a fascinating guy. And really, you know, the same way we were so proud and, and happy to bring you Bob Salen's side of Star Trek II. It's so great to be able to showcase um, 
uh, uh, Ralph Winter because he was, you know, the heart and soul of, of, of those movies, getting it, getting it done. He was the Jellico. He got it done. You know, <laughs> people don't realize, particularly on those movies, with how little money they had, how challenging they were. And you get a sense from you'll get a sense from Ralph uh, just about how exciting that was in a way. To, it was all a big mind puzzle. How do we do this when we don't have enough money? We don't have enough time, but, you know, to, to make the bet, you know, and there's a lot of people talking about, you know, people that you know, are involved in certain other Star Treks. They don't care. They're not invested. You could just hear it even all these years later, how much Ralph cared about what they were doing. Yeah. And maybe that's why for good or bad, these, some of the movies were great. Some of them not so great. They're all they worth watching all these years later because the people making them were invested in it. They cared good or bad. They cared. Well, we care too. And why don't we bring him in? Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, we proudly present Ralph winter. And uh, we're thrilled to have uh, Ralph winter with us today. Uh, a, a veteran of uh, ABC still the one lineup back in the day uh, working for Paramount uh, yeah. God, that was the golden age of uh, television comedy, wasn't it? Happy Day, Laverne, Shirley, Mork and Minnie, oh. all shooting on the lot. Amazing. It was uh, gave me a distorted picture of the business because I drove a half an hour to the studio and everything was on stage. Yeah. And uh, great big family of people from television and features. It was a magical time. We had 12 or 13 shows on the air. Wow. Uh, yeah. on the three networks and that was the biggest of anybody and it was fun and there's a lot of crossover from feature to tv stuff i remember uh we were doing police squad as a limited series with zucker zucker and abrams and of course feature guys would come over so bill shatner was a was a guest star in episode two right you know, because in the main title those stars would be would be killed exactly. they'd never show up yeah, that was the marketing. It, you know, it's a great bit. William Shatner, but you know he was in in a bar, if I remember. Yeah, and was he a, was like a, five a, feet a, away a, from Banquet, and he was gunned down by some mafia, <laughs> and that was it. So, but funny, funny stuff. Had a great, great time. To um, very fortunate to be in the business at that time. Yeah, and and um, you know, I just I, I got to imagine like the tenor of the lot too. It's just, you know, there's something in success. And, you know, if you, you, you didn't want to be on the Fox lot in the late 60s, you know. No, uh, no. But, you know, to be a Paramount during that time where they were just dominating television and in the 80s dominating features, uh, it, it, it just, it, 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 and we'll never have that again. You know, no, anything it, like was, that. it was a family. And Frank Mancuso ran it like a family uh, when he was president, but also in distribution. And, you know, we would have, during the summers, we would have a giant employee party on the back lot. Mm. And that's still still the only back lot in Hollywood. But it was like 50 acres. And so the back lot, all the movie marquees would be another movie that was being shown that summer. So there'd be a band. And then that band would shut down and another band would fire up. And there's 5,000, 6,000 people on the back lot eating, drinking, and socializing. And... Uh, was quite a remarkable time. I loved um, when this, the, the studios celebrated their history. Recently on social media, there was a photo circulating from Paramount in the 80s. And it was like 
Tom Cruise, I think, was right after doing Top Gun. And then you had mm. Jimmy Stewart and you had Glenn Ford. And yeah. uh, it was like 80. It was I think it was like the 75th anniversary of Paramount. Shatner's in it. Leonard's in it. D's in it. And it's just this amazing sense yeah. of a continuity, you know, of old yeah. Hollywood yeah. and new Hollywood. And uh, I just can't, you know, how's is Netflix going to do that? No. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so, it, uh, I remember that when they took that photo, we were all hanging around while they were do- shooting that photo. And it was remarkable. It was really, you know, that was also the days, at least the earlier days in the late 70s, when the, the Western lot was still there. Sure. When I started out, I would drive my 64 VW bug that I had dro- driven to uh, Berkeley. And I parked it in one of the places you know where the horses would pull up for the bar that wrapped their rope around i wrapped a rope around the bumper of my 64 bw bug and wrapped it to the to the rail to hold the bug in place so the bug wouldn't get away <laughs> and uh it wasn't much sense of humor in the security department but it lasted for a while and got some laughs and but it was fun you know we was yeah. you know you knew the studio guards driving in uh the commissary was alive and yeah success breeds that every night of the week was another comedy three camera comedy that was shot just the way Lucille ball shot them with three cameras. Mm, right. And um, yeah, it was vibrant. It was a great time. I was very fortunate, you know, to be there. Uh, golden age, no question. Yeah. And Star remember- Trek is a part of that. Oh, absolutely. And, and trust me, we'll get to Star Trek. But before we get to your association with Star Trek, I want to ask you, yeah. you know, if you remember in the late, you know, when you were on the lot in the late seventies, it was a big deal that the motion Star Trek, the motion picture was shooting there. Um, oh. you know, with Bob Wise. And I just wonder what it was like for you as an outsider who was working on all these comedies and on these other, because I, so many people have great stories who didn't work on Star Trek at the time, just going over and seeing the sets and seeing the craziness. Because there's never oh, been yeah. anything like it. It was just, the Ten Commandments was probably like the last thing that was like. It's true. You know, um, when I started, I remember, I think they were doing reshoots so it was probably September of 79. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I went into the commissary, I'm pretty sure on the first day. And I'm in line behind, I'm 6'4", but I'm in line behind a couple of 6'8 Klingons. And in full makeup, who are going to get a smoothie or something to sip through a straw. And I remember getting in line thinking, the hell have I done? Well, what is this? <laughs> What is going on? I mean, I watched Star Trek as a kid, but then I just wasn't, you know, confronted with it up close like that. And uh, yeah, the sets were fabulous. And I also remember when we were getting, you know, the movie was barely released on time. Um, And to get the prints out, I remember stage five was empty and all the cars were pulling up uh, limos as well as delivery vans to all the theaters in the greater Los Angeles area. And all of us were all hands on deck, make sure that all the reels are lined up and proper for each car that was picking up. So we were helping to check that off. And there goes the limo to, you know, the Westwood theaters and et cetera. So right. that was what someone, someone called a, uh, a, a stage full of headstones with all, yeah. all, the, all the reels stacked. Oh, yeah. All the Goldbergs. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's an incredible story. I mean, just the fact that, you know, in Westwood, they could be projecting the first reel, waiting for the wet prints to come in to finish, you know, uh, the, 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 to platter up and, and show the rest of the film. I mean, it, Doug it's told just... me that uh, flying to D.C. for the premiere, he was doing hot splices on the plane. He was hot splicing the 70 millimeter print on the plane, cutting in the last opticals uh, before the, the screening where they were going to land and show the film. I mean, that's remarkable. That's, that's insane. That's, that's insane. And little did you know this was going to be your life for the next 10 years. When Little, uh, little did I know. Um, so, so let's yeah. talk about you getting dragged into, uh, uh, in, into con. Was that Harv or Bob Salen who recruited you for a post on that? You know, uh, it was actually during production where, uh, I met both guys and became friends with both. Um, Harv and Bob had a falling out during yeah. the process, really over credit. Um, Harv didn't realize as a television executive producer that in, tel in features, the roles are reversed. Right. <clears throat> and he learned that, you know, the hard way. And, and I'm not sure how much he and Bob spoke after that. I tried to be a the glue between the two, but it was very, very difficult. Um, I made friends with both of them. I had made friends with Harv earlier on some TV pilots, Powers of Matthew Starr, sure. Powers of David Starr, I think it was. It was on an Easter, actually. It was on an Easter morning when I was at Harv's uh, place up in uh, on Mulholland, and we were talking about how to make the effects work and how to cut it. And we built a relationship and I had cut some things for him, some uh, trailers that he wasn't getting on other stuff. And so we built a relationship. And so it was hard really that brought me in uh, and, uh, and wanted me to participate. And I made friends with Nick Meyer. And I remember pissing off my boss at the time, Paul Hager, who was the head of post because I'd had a computer science background, math background at, at, at Berkeley. And so the effects came easy to me. And so I was on set a lot to help with that until I got called out of dailies one day on the TV shows. And Nick wanted me on set to talk through an effect shot. And my boss lost his mind that, yeah, this is kid that a year or two ago, he's at the Broadway department stores. And he, yeah, what do you mean the director needs him on set? <laughs> he lost his mind. But, um, yeah, built a good relationship with the guys. And then, of course, in post, helped deliver on a very tight post schedule, even tight by today's standards. But with 100 opticals that, you know, done in a traditional way with ILM was very uh, tenuous. Um, yeah, we made that happen. I also, at the Man's National Theater, I got some notoriety with Eisner and Katzenberg because I went in there and they had been running... Um, what was the Mel's movie? Uh, the Australian. Uh, oh, Gallipoli or no? no, no. Um, the series of movies. Can't think of it. Oh, Mad Max. Oh. Mad Max. And they had rewired the theater incorrectly. And so mm -hmm. they left it that way. And when we ran the prints, I watched nearly all of the 70 millimeter prints that got made. Um, and I knew it didn't sound right. So. Uh, I made them go in and rewire the theater, which made a difference and made a difference, you know, for people that wanted to see the movie in, in Westwood. 
Sure. In those days when you would shoot a lot of, uh, we didn't shoot any of uh, Star Trek, Wrath of Khan in, in 65, but you'd blow it up, you'd make a print, and then for, 60, for 65, you'd watch the print dry without sound. And then you would stripe it. You would lay down the stripe and a balanced stripe on the other side and let that cure for 48 to 72 hours. And then you would record the sound on that stripe. And right. then you would screen it again. I screened all of those prints. Wow. So I knew the movie backwards and forwards. And so when I went into the theater, I knew immediately that it didn't sound right. Um, so I remember Eisner coming personally over to me and saying, thank you for doing that. That shows the dedication we need and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, fun memories. And I got to be on set during a lot of iconic moments with Spock and Kirk and all that and, and met those guys. So it was fun. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, marooned for all eternity, buried alive, buried alive. Sean! Sean! At the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Was it a little different for you in the sense that um, obviously back then it was like the Berlin Wall between features and television, but because Star Trek II was being produced under the aegis of the TV division, um, did that give you sort of that, it, it made it possible for you to sort of work on That was my entree as in post-production to do that because it was television. Again, pissing off my boss who ran features and television because, right. you know, why weren't they calling him? Um and yeah, we made that movie for, you know, just under $13 million. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, and, you know, you also don't realize that, that, you know, we really didn't go on location for that movie. It's all on view screens. Uh, Ricardo Montalban and Kirk never had a scene together in the same, you know, time it's and incredible. space. Yeah. You know, until you really think about it, you, you, you never re realize that. I mean, and, and then, of course, it all... It, it, you're like, yeah, they never had a scene. I mean, I, how many times you said this? Like, oh, they, they, they have no scenes together. Of course they do. And then you say, yeah, tell me what it is because you won't find it in the movie. 
Um, which, it's remarkable. It's a, and it's remarkable all the sort of mythology that's grown up around it. Um, you know, Ricardo Montalban didn't have a chest piece on. That's him. He's a tennis player. He was fit. Um, a lot of the hangers on around Ricardo made a killing on uh, conventions afterwards, you know, as sort of their inside stories, which were not much to talk about. Um, and, you know, there, for me, I was also at a key moment. We previewed the movie when Spock dies at the Paramount theater and we came out and the cards, the preview cards were horrible. Right. I mean, the audience hated the movie and we all powwowed. We went back to Gary Nardino's office and powwowed for two or three hours. And the influx of people coming in and out from Barry Diller to uh, Michael Eisner, who was there the whole time, Katzenberg, Nardino, all the sort of luminaries of Paramount were moving in and out of the room during the meeting. And uh, I was, you know, I'm like, how the hell am I in this meeting? You know, Harv's here, Nick's here, Bob Salen. What, what am I doing here? Um, but it was remarkable. It was remarkable to see the, the thought process. And it was Eisner who came up with the answer saying that what we saw and what we delivered was Good Friday. What we didn't deliver was Easter Sunday. Right. And so we paid ILM at that point $100,000 to do one shot in Golden Gate Park. Yeah. And that changed the movie yeah. and yeah. gave you hope. But were you there uh, for the discussions with Nick? Uh, because obviously it was something that he fought tooth and nail against. And, you know, at that point he didn't have the, the clout. I don't think he, even now he would have the clout to, to keep that from happening. Um, he wasn't fighting that in the room, as I remember. Mm. But he may have had a lot of other discussions because I wasn't with the director or a producer on the movie. I was just an executive. But it was pretty remarkable moment in the room where – it was like when that was said, it was like, yeah, of course, that's it. That's the answer. Mm -hmm. That it was obvious to everyone. And I don't remember what Nick's objections were, but Nick is pretty persuasive and pretty smart. Um, so uh, I'm sure he put up a valiant effort to reverse that. Um, but at any rate, that really set that movie off on a course that um, – you know, kind of saved the franchise because that twelve and a half million dollar movie made eighty or ninety million dollars in the box office, right? And set the tone. So and it's extraordinary. After all these years, it's still the movie that everyone talks about. It's still the movie that you know has permeated pop culture. That is 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 the most you know beloved film you know in that it's well series. Written. It's yeah. well written, you know. Uh, they're still making fun of Bill Shatner for some of the things he does in that movie, yelling at Khan and, and uh, you know, there's some, still some lines you cringe at, but you know, it was Horatio Hornblower. Nick uh, had us watch movies. Some of the old, some of those older movies to get the feeling of, this is what I want to deliver. Sure. These great galleons and in, 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 only in space, you know, in these battles and uh yeah, we had remarkable people working on the movie that we didn't realize how important and how talented all those people were. It was very fortunate. 
And how was it working with ILM? Because, of course, I think it was the first, if not one of the first films they did for an outside vendor that wasn't a Lucas or Spielberg project, you know, um, Star Trek II. Correct. Um, ILM, you know, I made a fatal mistake on Star Trek V to sort of change it up, thinking that ILM was too expensive. And I made a fatal mistake that almost ended my career in hiring uh, Brand Farron uh, and his group. But, um, you know, it was an accommodation of us learning to see how they work. I think they hit their stride magnificently in Star Trek Voyage Home. Um, but, uh, yeah, we sort of had to accommodate and learn into the Lucasfilm world how to act and work and how they thought about things. Right. But we made some great relationships still yeah. today. And to be uh, fair, so, so, did, so did they need to learn how to deal with someone who well, wasn't that's right. Lucas and Spielberg, that's right. you know, because right. uh, they had, uh, as Mark said, they hadn't uh, dealt with anyone different before. Well, no one held their feet to the fire. This is what came in, in Star Trek uh, V, is that, you know, they demanded that when they delivered things, that there was a certain amount of time they had to give feedback and only a certain number of changes. You could do four or five versions and that was done. And so... The, the contract that I helped negotiate was that's fine. So if we miss our deadline, there's a penalty. If we don't give feedback soon enough, there should be a price in, in, you know, increase. You should get more because we failed. Right. But that's a two-way street. Right. If I deliver my feedback and you don't deliver the opticals and time so that I can preview the movie and I can get to the theater on release date, right. there's an equal penalty that you should be um, you know, paying. And that became really contentious and went to Sid Gannis at the time, who was in the management, who had formerly been at Lucasfilm. And he came to me and said, Ralph, decaf, just calm down. Don't, we're, we're, we also make the Raiders films with these people. We do a lot of other stuff. We're not going to piss them off because you didn't get your opticals on time and you missed your preview. We'll take care of you. You can have your preview. But uh, so there was a, it was, it was definitely a stacked deck, but yeah, I think they did have to learn. I think that's a good point. They did have to learn how to use and work with outside people outside the Lucas world. And at that point, God bless them. Uh, the Bay area did no wrong. You right. guys down in LA, you don't know how to make movies. We know how to do it. That's why Francis Ford Coppola is here. That's why George Lucas is here. This is where you want to be. This is where movies get made. This is how we do it. This is better. This is this. That didn't age well. But um, <laughs> but at the, know, time, at, the, at the time, at the time, they were that's right. right. It, it's true. It's true. And look, I don't want to jump too far ahead and we'll come back. <laughs> but because you 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 brought this up, the, the whole Brand Farron debacle, you have said and I think this is a very good point in defense of what you said that, you know, you had these major problems with them on Star Trek four and the God test from brand Farron was so impressive. Yes. That why, and you were already struggling with budget. Why wouldn't you consider another vendor? You know, on paper, it seems like the right decision. It's yes. only in retrospect that it's, yes. it, it's not. Plus well, it came, it, it became obvious when it came time to deliver. And I, I've used this example before is that, you know, Brand Farron's ideas are a mile wide. Right. And the problem is delivery 
and uh, uh, workflow is about six feet thick. Right. ILM is about a half a mile wide, but they're half a mile deep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They can yeah, do anything. It, it wasn't a question of vision. It was a question no. of um, experience and uh, and uh, he work. sold very well. He yeah. sold us very well, and we were. I I really felt like it was exciting. We were going to get stuff in camera. We were going to achieve things that no one else had really given us um, any, you know, cogent answers to. Right. And so, yeah, we were excited. We were and very plus, excited. As I, as I think you've said in the past, they were, uh, ILM was so booked at the time. That was a huge season for yeah. movies. So yeah. all of their, their A, B, and C teams were already committed to other yeah. projects. So you would be yeah. getting, you know, for lack of a better term, the D team to yeah. work on the Star yeah. Trek movie. So yeah. who knows how it would have gone other ways, you know, because it. But, but yeah, but if I could go back, I don't know, I might, I might take the C team, you know, for delivery. <laughs> And I sure wish I could would. go back and I, I wish I could go back and replace some of those opticals in in um, Final Frontier. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's very analogous to what happened with Abel on Star Trek: The Motion Picture. The difference mm-hmm. on Star Trek: The Motion Picture is the studio put up the extra money to hire, you know, Trumbull and John Dykstra, and you know, save the picture. Whereas in Star Trek Five, they they weren't willing to do that, no. and we have what we you know what we have, which is the reason. The reason they did that on the motion picture, and I've I've heard this, you know, multiple times from. I'm not going to say who from, right? But had they not delivered Star Trek the motion picture on the date they promised, yeah, there would have been the largest lawsuit in entertainment history. Against it would have Paramount. destroyed the studio. It would have, yeah, because they had already collected the money from the theaters. So it didn't matter what it cost. It literally didn't matter. And Doug Trumbull was told, I don't care if you shoot the fucking yellow pages. You do what it takes and you have to deliver the film. I don't care. There will be a movie called Star Trek in theaters on December 7th. That's right. Whether whether there's the, whether it's the yellow pages or not, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, it, it was with that that Doug, and the team went after it and delivered something fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Aren't you glad you weren't the post-supervisor on that movie? You probably wouldn't be oh, here man. to talk to us at this oh, point. Man. Rough, yeah. rough going. Crazy. I think Bob Abel had only delivered uh, an explosion in the wormhole sequence by yeah. July of 79. Nothing else was done. And they, yeah. in, from scratch, and that's why that's why Doug was hot splicing on the, on the flight. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, getting back to Star Trek Two before we move on to Star Trek Three, where it, I think it gets even you know more interesting for you. Um, you know, you mentioned even now, like the, the mythologizing of Star Trek Two. There's still stories to be mined. I mean, we talked to Ed Egan a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah, and, right. you know, there was this whole story about Khan's son. You know, all the footage on Khan's son that was shot that we we knew nothing about, and we know a little about Star Trek. Uh, you know, it was it, it's 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 pretty amazing that after you know close to forty years now, there, there's still stuff to mine. There's still movie archaeology to be done there, um, and then all this stuff started showing up. These pictures, I guess, that had been released that Majel had leaked of uh, the baby on the transporter pad, you know, uh, of the Reliant, and just it's fascinating that that that, that all this stuff you know I'm still unaware. comes to light. I'm unaware. <laughs> you probably should talk to Nick 
who would know intimately, but uh, I'm I'm actually blank on that. I don't remember yeah, much about it's, that. It's it's crazy. So Star Trek Two obviously is a huge sleeper hit. Everyone's you know thrilled with his performance. And then tell us about you know I assume it was you know, obviously Harv coming to you and saying, hey, I want you to come on board Star Star Trek Three and produce this with me. How, how did that all come about? And um, you know obviously that went through a, a fair amount of rewriting because his original treatment, you know, Return to Genesis obviously evolved dramatically. And the fact that Harv took it upon himself to, you know, write the script himself as well. Yeah. You know, we had built a quite a bond and relationship by that point. And I had a difficult negotiation where I had to ask, I had gotten some offers to ascend in the ranks at, uh, at Paramount and television. But so I had to sort of turn down those offers and asked to be released and then get hired by Star Trek at a higher weekly salary to account for, you know, being a, a an at-will employee and not a full-time employee. So it was a difficult negotiation, but Harv and I built quite a relationship and, um, you know, he was, you know, very kind to involve me in, in, in the story development and the script process. And he, really pulled on all of his skills of years of television in pulling that together. Um, and, you know, trying to build something that, you know, we could do with, with, with movies that really felt a little more like television, but we were going to make it on a bigger scale. And so part of my job was to make it feel bigger and wider and all of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, with with Leonard directing. It was it was really interesting in terms of how to pull those things together. All that they've loved, all that they've fought for, all that they've stood for, will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir. The word is no. I am therefore going anyway. You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage all the systems. Clear all moorings. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Klingon bird appraiser. She's army torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's non-responsive. We're sitting duck. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The adventure continues. Rated PG. What Very were funny. some of the What were some of the challenges from the studio at that point? Because I know that even though they were probably willing to, you know, maybe pay a little bit more for the movie, they probably didn't want to pay for the movie that was scripted. No, yeah, we, we got uh, 16 million, I think, to do yeah. the third one. Which uh, isn't a lot of money at all, no. even in those days. No, it's not. Um, but again, it was a TV. It was kind of like, you guys did it in the TV thing. You can, you can do this. You can make this happen. So there was that pressure to do that. Um, I think we went out on location on that movie, maybe only two or three days, Occidental College. Right, for the end, yeah for some of the uh, Vulcan stuff, but otherwise it was all on stage. And, uh, you know, the trickiest thing that we dealt with was the casting of young Spock 
and making people believe that. And I think we pulled that off pretty well. I think, isn't three where we also recast uh, Kirstie Alley? Yeah, yeah with Robin with, Curtis. Yeah. With Robin Curtis. And so that was tricky as well. She was, you know, a lovely person, but didn't have the same, you know, didn't bring the same oomph to the screen that, that Kirstie Alley did. Um, but I don't remember too much turmoil with the studio. That was actually pretty smooth in my mind in terms of what we were dealing with and how to get there. They, they trusted us to, uh, to do a good job on that. Do you regret that you didn't have more money where, because I know it was like Charles Carell wanted to go to Hawaii to shoot the Genesis planet. And, you know, <laughs> so instead you're, you know, you're on the, sound, on the soundstage of Paramount, which obviously works for the TV show, but probably for a big feature is, you know, a, a questionable, but you had no choice. We had no choice. We, we were, we were constrained by that budget. Um, and again, you know, on all six of the movies, it was only on four and and five really that we got out for more than two weeks. Sure. It was really, they were very stage bound, very much of the era of making movies that way. And also very much of the story and the way those stories were told more faithful to the original series rather than zipping around like Star Wars. Right. Uh, we were trying to be more faithful to the characters and the character development uh, and and that intensity, um, yeah, in an older style. I mean, I don't think you can make those movies that way anymore. You, no. you can't do it. How was it dealing with Bill? Because, you know, Bill, obviously, there was a certain amount of competition with Leonard. Leonard was, you know, getting his chance to direct for obvious reasons. Um, and then, you know, Bill, but Bill was also doing TJ Hooker at the time. So he, he you know, he was burning the candle at both ends. Um you know, what, 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 what did you find that ex experience like and, and uh, you know, the challenges that lay with that? Bill was, uh, I think on, on Star Trek four was more sort of vocal with Harv and I about, you know, my turn is coming. And uh, I think that's what he negotiated to be in four was that he would direct five. Right. Um, so there was just that there was a little bit of underlying tension. Uh, I don't remember it being, you know, uh, oppressive. I don't remember it being stopping the production. It was never anything overt like that. I don't think Leonard ever would have let that happen. Um, but Leonard was a very contained, very uh, organized, very low key in terms of the way he directed. And maybe not like Clint Eastwood, but, but just, you know, everything was, was orderly and, 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 uh, and controlled maybe. <laughs> Maybe that was a bit of Spock coming out. I don't know, but he uh, he went about it in a very methodical way with his 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 uh, preparation and and execution of an, and shooting style. So, yeah, I think Bill raised those questions every once in a while, but it wasn't. I didn't feel like on set that it was oppressive or that it was right. somehow bubbling out all the time. Yeah. And you really see uh, Leonard mature as a director through those films because, I oh, mean, yeah. you know, four is, is so much better directed than three. You oh, know, yeah. I mean, he always says, though, the training wheels are off and there was less studio interference. But I mean, you can just see it. I mean, I know a lot of the people that listen to the podcast love Star Trek. I mean, just adore Star Trek three. But I think it's also depends on sort of how old you were when you saw it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, people mm -hmm. who 
you know, it was their first time seeing a movie, a Star Trek movie in theater, just absolutely adore the film. And I think some other people see more of the, the seams, but you know, it was a huge challenge I, for you and for Harv and for everybody, you know, because you make this film that uh, was largely critically beloved and kills off Spock in such an emotional way. And now you have to attempt the resurrection, which is a much more challenging task. I mean, you know, even Nick talks about it. Like, I don't know how to do resurrections. Yeah. Uh, I would have hated to have had to do that film. Yeah. It, um, you know, we, the, the, some of the biggest things that we fought, certainly on Star Trek, Wrath of Khan, you know, you can't kill Spock. And these are the days pre-internet where there's a letter writing campaign and bags of mail would show up. You can't kill Spock. Right. And, you know, I've talked about this before that when you're dealing with a comic book audience or a fan audience like Star Trek, you got to pay attention to the core, but you can't give them everything they want. Right. And so you can kill Spock if you do it right. Right. You you can blow up the enterprise if you do it right. You know it's it's um, they're, 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 it's the way you do it and the way you pay attention to the fan base that uh, you know makes that stuff work. So that was really the more overwhelming things for us was the the fan base not wanting to admit that you know you're going to blow up the enterprise. And but that was maybe some of a distraction with with Spock being, you know, right. How's he going to come back? Well, that's the that's the thing that, uh, you know, uh, I think Harv was very surprised when uh, Paramount's publicity department uh, gave away the destruction of the Enterprise in their trailer. <laughs> you know, I remember. Yes. You know, it, <laughs> and it's it the is. sled. Rosebud is the sled. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Oh. It's crazy. Classic classic tension between filmmakers in the studio about how to advertise and, and the movie. Sure. Um, you know, I think on every movie, when there's an opportunity to have a discussion, it's, it's how much do you give away to uh, get butts and seats? And exactly. they didn't ask us, they didn't care because in those departments that are siloed like that, they don't give a shit. They were just going <laughs> to do what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, so I got to ask you, obviously at that time, who was handling running interference with Gene? I assume it was mostly Harv, uh, less so. It was mostly Harv. Yeah, it was mostly Harv running interference. You know, Gene had something in his contract that I don't remember the wording exactly, but if there was a problem, if there was some, you know, uh, narrative issue that wouldn't fit in the Star Trek world, that they would have to pay him to come in and solve it. So there's always a problem. Right, right, right. There's always a problem. Um, the only time there wasn't a problem, and I screened the last movie, Undiscovered Country, with Gene in the Paramount Theater mm-hmm. about a week before he died. Yeah. And I remember he was in a wheelchair with a blanket, you know, um, and he enjoyed the movie. And I talked to him afterwards as he was being wheeled out. And he said, no, this is great. I, I-, I love the movie, and uh, I think this is going to be great, and I'm, I'm very pleased. So uh, he wasn't able to sort of extract what he normally would at that point. And maybe he was just softening and whatever, but yeah. um, look, you got to hand it to him. It was his vision. It was his thing. Um, and he was a bit cantankerous on the TV series, on the features, yeah. uh, on the second series. He was, he was difficult to handle, but 
um, you know, you can't take it away from him. The guy had a great idea and he executed and he made, you know, we're still talking about it. Come on. Yes. Yeah. Cantankerous is a good years. way of putting it. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard a lot of adjectives to describe it. Cantankerous is perfect. Yeah, it's, it's that's really, who he was. Yeah. And, you know, Majel, you know, was, they were going through the film bins, taking out, you know, leftover pieces of film and cutting them into frames and selling them. Sure. And, you know, you have to, we're not done editing yet. Hang on. <laughs> don't, <laughs> right. be, don't be cutting everything up and selling it before we're done. But um, right. yeah, they were entrepreneurs and, um, and, and making it happen. So yeah, God bless them. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when all was said and done on Star Trek three, you know, were you, were you happy with the finished result? Obviously the, the uh, box office speaks for itself. It was successful. Yeah, um, I was happy. And uh, we knew at that point that, uh, Star Trek four was coming. And so we were excited about that. And then the, the fact that the audience embraced three just made us more uh, encouraged that what we had coming was, was going to be even better. So. And how did things change for you now? Because now it was finally under the auspices of the feature division as opposed right. to TV. I mean, you know, you, you can see it in the film. It's like Don Peterman's uh, uh, lensing is just uh, it's such a huge step up. And just uh, the fact that you're on location and it's it just, you know, everything about that movie feels bigger, you know, bigger and, and yeah. more cinematic. And, and uh, obviously, you know, along with Star Trek two, it's the film that everyone cites is, you know, most people's favorite Star Trek film. Yeah, I, you're good for you to be observant about that. I think that <clears throat> we were all hitting our stride at that point. I was supposed to do a movie, The Golden Child, um, with Eddie Murphy. And they offered me an executive producer with, with I can't remember the producer's name, Dan. Um, I don't know his name. This escapes me. Anyway, um, he'd offered me an executive producer. I said, you know, that's very nice, but I have to go back to Harv because I promised Harv I wouldn't do anything else before I go back. And I remember going back to Harv and saying, so I've got an offer to be an executive producer. And I said to you when I left on three, that I'm not going to be an associate producer. I was producing that movie. I was there before you guys were there. I watched dailies with Charlie Carell at 5.30 at Technicolor. I was there you know, I knew the problems and solved them before Harv and the other guys even showed up. So I said, you know, I was going to ask for more, but I'm telling you, I've got an offer as an executive producer. So, you know, that's what I'm interested in in this picture. And I remember Harv said to me, are you sure it was executive producer? <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm very sure. I'm very sure. So we made the deal and, um, you know, yeah, we were all hitting our stride. I think Leonard hit his stride. We finished the, sh the, the shoot a day or two early under schedule. Pete, Ber Pete um, Berger, Peter Berger with the editor um, had a cut ready like three days after we finished. We sat down and watched it. Leonard invited us in to watch it. And it was funny and it worked and we were giddy and we were like poking each other going, holy shit this is going to work. This is, mm. this is great. Yeah. This is, we got something here. And um, that was amazingly rewarding for a clever story that Leonard had helped shape with the whales. And um, I think Nick had come in to do some writing on it. As I remember. Yeah. Right? The San Francisco and, stuff. 
Yeah. And we got to play the San Francisco stuff. You didn't have to be a dot in the world Trek fan to understand what was going on. Right. And so I think we, we were, we were hitting all cylinders. We were going and it felt really good. Avoid the planet at all costs. We are under the attack of an opening probe. Notify all stations. Starfleet emergency. Red alert. Earth is on the edge of destruction. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the probe. The key to saving the future. Spock, you're talking about the end of every life on Earth. Can be found only in the past. We're going to attempt time travel. Sulu, take us home. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Stardate 1986. San Francisco. Our own world is waiting for us to save it. They have 24 hours. Everybody remember where we parked. Break up. To complete their mission. You look like a cadet review. We will beam in tonight, collect the photons and beam out. I want you all to be very careful. Without being discovered. We have an intruder. All right, who are you? You're not exactly catching us at our best. That much is certain. This is an extremely primitive and paranoid culture. What does it mean, exact change? Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. We're ready for beam out. My transporter power is down to minimal. I've got to bring you in one at a time. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Let's do our job and get out of here. Freeze! Take off, can you hear me? Freeze! I've lost it. Who are you? You can't. Our next stop is the 23rd century. Full power now, sir. Shields at maximum. Steady. Hold on tight, lassie. Can we make breakaway speed? That's all I can give you! Book eight. Book nine. Now. Star Trek IV. The Voyage Home. Yeah, a, a big mainstream success, and it gave Leonard a real directing career. So he goes on and does yeah, three men, a baby, and you know, and obviously what he d- did with the capital from that, he kind of squandered it on some bad choices after that. But um, it really, uh, you know, it, it's 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 really amazing because I mean, he really, you know, they say there are no second acts in this business, but Leonard had like a second act and a third act and a fourth, oh, yeah. and then he was a photographer, and it's. it's I remember really when he was shooting when he was shooting uh, three. Three Men and a Baby, uh, there had been a dispute going back some years with Paramount about um, merchandising. Sure. And Bill was going to direct five. Leonard wasn't thrilled about it. Leonard was making noise like, do I really need to do this? You know, what's the story? How are you going to contain Bill? What's the, what is all this about? And Harv in particular went to bat about that negotiation saying, if you want this next one to go well, we've had success with four. If you want it to go well, we got to take care of Leonard. I remember we went, we called Leonard to have lunch with him and we went over to the Disney lot and we said, we'll bring lunch. And we brought brown bag lunches and we brought four bags. This is Harv, perfect Harv. And we brought four bags. And so we sat down to lunch and Harv or Leonard says, who's the fourth bag? And 
Harv turns around and says, oh, that's that's for you, and pushes the bag over. Inside the bag is a check for a million dollars to uh, as a pre-settlement for the merchandising dispute that he had with Paramount. Just want you to know that we went to bat for you because we really want you in Star Trek V. Nothing makes a lunch go better than a million dollar check <laughs> along with a sandwich. See, and, that, and that's where, you know, Harv doesn't get the credit he deserves. I mean, here's oh. a guy who came on, knew nothing about Star Trek, but then the first thing he does is he educates himself. He doesn't try and change it into something it's not. He tries to learn everything there is to know, and then he's able to, to, to figure, you know, crack the code. And yeah. Well, he, uh, and, he was a whiz kid. That's right. Quiz kid. Quiz kid, right. From the 40s, yeah. <laughs> and he had met every president, you know, during his life until he retired. He, mm. he's, he was uh, an amazing statesman, and I was fortunate to be under his mentorship for, uh, you know, a number of years. Amazing. Yeah. And yes, I, I, I completely agree with you. He was un. un heralded he didn't get enough credit for what he did to revive the star trek uh franchise yeah and uh and 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 you know obviously people forget you know how big four was i mean what a huge hit it was you know it wasn't just a huge star trek movie it was a monster hit for paramount and Um, we made it for we made it for 21 million dollars i still have a letter on my wall here uh from the head of production at the time that we also brought it in under budget. Leonard was efficient in what he did. And I mean, it doesn't make any sense to anybody now, but if you look back at the, the amount of footage that was exposed, one of the lowest, I mean, it was very efficient in what he shot. It was the lowest footage count of what was exposed mm-hmm. on Star Trek Four. And so, yeah, it was enormously successful and profitable for those guys. And uh, they probably made more money off of that movie than they had you know, in their TV career. Right, oh, right. Do you think that as a result of, you know, you were victims of its success in terms of five? Because absolutely. Yeah, because everybody was, you know, trying to uh, basically Every, everybody to still wanted emulate the success. They, 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 they wanted the, they wanted whales without whales. They wanted comedy. Well, they wanted all the things that, it, you know, made yeah. it an outlier. What I said was what I've always said is we were smoking our own press releases from Star Trek four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. We thought we could do no wrong. And, but when you think about it, you know, the search for God, what did you think you were going to find? And did we inadvertently remake the motion picture? And it, it really, I mean, we worked hard at it. Um, David Lowry's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, you know, you get blinded sometimes by that stuff. We thought we were doing the, we were thought we were doing a very Star Trek movie and look, it still holds up in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but it just got goofy. And fortunately we jettisoned most of the extremely goofy parts, but um, we've, we've talked about Star Trek five a lot on, on the podcast before. And I think that the main thing that I like to think about it is that it was aiming higher than most of the yeah. most of the films were. Yeah, and that's, that, that's a good point. Yeah. I think for that intent, I really enjoy the film. 
even even though some some will say that it it fails at a lot of what it tries to attain at least it's trying to attain them and yeah. i think i think that's what i enjoy about the film the most that's good that's nice thank you that's 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 fair and um yeah the execution i don't think any of us had the skills to you know drive it to a better conclusion i remember in the desert um you know i think it was in the desert when i had a lot dinner with bill and, and and leonard and um oh no it was, it was with, with with leonard and harv about bill and saying um what are we going to do about bill and i was like what are we going to do what do you what do you he he goes you know it's just he's going too fast he's not paying enough attention and all this kind of stuff. And it happened when we, when we wrapped the movie, Bill was in the cutting room for like three weeks and he came to Harvard and I goes, I'm done. I've, I've cut the movie. It's, it's all ready to go. And he, when Bill walked out of the room, Harv and I looked at each other and go, holy shit, we're in trouble because he doesn't grasp what it takes to really work over the storytelling to get it. And he was, in tr he was, you know, it was, entitled to 10 weeks as a DGA director, but um, I, I think, I don't know if Bill appreciated the process in the same way. He hasn't done much directing. I don't know if he's done any since. I love Bill to death. I think he's enormously talented, smart. Talk about a third act, fourth act, fifth act. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. There's, there's nobody busier on Twitter than yeah. Bill Shatner. Yeah, right, um, exactly. Uh, but somehow it just didn't work. It didn't, it didn't gel in that movie for Bill and Hart was in the right place. Intentions were right. Um, he did his prep. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like what you're saying, Darren, that, that we were reaching really far and I don't think we saw past our success of Star Trek four and we thought we could do no wrong right. and we missed key elements and key pieces and putting that together. So. Well, it has some of the best character moments in any oh, of the films. I mean, oh, and we've talked to David about this. I mean, oh, that's yeah. where, you know, unfortunately, you know, the special effects people taint it. They can't oh. look the same way that people now, you know, can't watch a Hitchcock movie with bad rear projection. They're like, oh, those cheesy old movies. And, and they can't get past it. It was like, but the movie's brilliantly, you know, it's Ernie Lehman and it's this and it's brilliant and the acting and everything. And they're like, no, but it's corny. And it's the same thing. You got to watch Star Trek five and say, okay, the effects you know, aren't successful. But what yeah. about that movie is successful? Well, there's quite a bit that is successful about that movie. Yeah. A strange force has entered the galaxy. The future of mankind is at stake. It could only mean one thing. Greetings, Captain. Spock. I do not think you realize the gravity of your situation. Oh. The vacation is over. The crew of the Starship Enterprise. Enterprise, are you ready? Is taking adventure where it has never gone before. What are you standing around for? Do you not know a jailbreak when you see one? From the mind of a madman. Hostile force has taken control of our vessel. Mr. Solo, full ahead. Through the center of the galaxy. You know we'll never make it through the Great Barrier. To the final frontier. Fascinating. How often have you done this? 
Actually, it's my first attempt. Fire the rockets! You never cease to amaze me. Nor I myself. This is the boldest trek of all. Warp speed now. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Mr. Scott, you're amazing. There's nothing amazing about it. I know this ship like the back of my hand. And you have to be able to kind of discern that. And, um, you know, look, I, I, it's interesting to hear you talk about Bill that way, because, of course, he's like a shark who always has to be moving. And I think he gets bored raised. He wants the next yeah. event. That's good. And, yeah. You know, so, you know, it's it's not that he did a bad job. I mean, you look at that teaser, the Lawrence of Arabia teaser. It's wonderfully shot. And it was, you know, yeah. wonderfully conceived. And and a lot of the direction is, is quite is quite well. But it's like. Is what you say. He he doesn't want to stick out the boring parts. He wants to cut all the boring parts of filmmaking out and just skip ahead, you know. And um, it's 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 because he just is always has to be moving, and that's why at ninety he's still spry and relevant and amazing and incredible. Yeah. He's incredible. I mean, we pulled off some things on that show. We, you know, uh, there are not very many feature films that have shot in Yosemite Valley. Yeah, we were able to pull that off. And they had come off a horrible experience at Universal with, for some reason, they were painting the rocks, which is like, what are you smoking? What's wrong with you people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, the opening the climbing sequence was, uh, we, we made some, God, we made some mistakes at the very beginning on that. That wall, which is at Tunnelview Park, if you've been to Yosemite, there's a there's a parking lot where you can see, um you can see the wall that uh, right. that you climb, El Capitan. And so when we lined up our wall, you'd get the same view that you would get if you were actually climbing. And they did a pretty good job on the wall. But when you look at the real wall at El Capitan, there's actually inside of the granite, there's a glistening, there's a, a life to it yeah. that wasn't coming out on the set. And so Herman Zimmerman tried to do something at the last minute and we were stuck and we had to shoot and it looked fake. It looked plastic. And that was, you know, unfortunate. We probably should have left it alone. But that climbing sequence and uh, the stunt guy that fell 390 feet, which is the largest fall ever at right. that point, And sort of the production things that we did on that show were remarkable. Um, but, you know, the effects just didn't live up that didn't help us that yeah. helped once you've got something to complain about then you can point to other things and say well that doesn't work either and this and that so sure. i i wore that and almost i almost ended my career because i'm the one that fought for making a change from ilm and trying something new and on a big franchise movie poof learn my lesson and now it'd be different because there'd be 12 vendors and if somebody screwed up, they'd be replaced. So, I mean, yeah. it's, a, uh, yeah. it's, it's different. It's different but, different you know, world. also the thing about Bill, you know, that perfect storm is you have Star Trek four that people thought was successful because it was funny. And then you have Bill who always wants to go for the joke rather than necessarily the heart of a scene. And so there's a tendency in that whole movie to go for the, the joke rather than you know uh the 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 heart and and um because bill's always going to want to go for his chance for him to be funny and uh 
you know, so the bridge isn't working and you, you have a scene with him and Harv at the top of the show. And, you know, and, and, and that doesn't help, you know, it, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It's too bad because you're right. In real life, he's, he's hilarious. He really is a funny he's guy. Hilarious. Yeah, so, right, yeah. exactly. But, but um, it's a different skill set when you're directing and, and it was too bad. So, it's too bad. Uh, and then, you know, like it's not, it's never, he's not everybody's Clint Eastwood. It's, it's very difficult to direct yourself, especially on your oh. first movie. Oh. Um, oh, yeah. and, and, and and you know basically oversee the, the development of the script and direct it and act in it and be number one on the call sheet and it's a lot and then try to accommodate all the people who've been saying all these nasty things about you for years by, by being so nice and trying to prove and include them all in the script so all of a sudden you know uh the the the, the supporting cast is given all this stuff oh, to yeah. do it's, it's it's not an easy job. I I mean that was a, I can't imagine a, you know real challenge and and you know it was a tough summer. I mean what, it was the same summer as uh, Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. Yeah. Uh, it was the summer of Bat- yeah. Batman, eighty nine, and and, and, Bat- yeah. and Batman. Yeah, so um, you know you, you you guys didn't have an easy job of it. So then Star Trek Five comes out and you come up with. The solution to all your problems an aging cast uh, uh, budgets that are going up and up and up seems like the perfect solution. Go back to yep. the beginning. Uh, yep. Tell us a little bit about um, the Academy years and, and obviously what, what, why that never came to fruition. I guess you could argue that it did in Star yep. Trek 2009, but uh... it did. Uh, JJ used that opening scene that we had developed with uh, David Um I pitched the idea to Harv at his daughter's bat mitzvah. And I said, you know, why don't we go back to the beginning? Why don't we have young Spock at, an, at the Academy? Young Spock, young Kirk. We demonstrated it with Star Trek three. We can do it again. And, and I pitched Frank Mancuso on the back lot. I know exactly on the lot where I did it and pitched him. And I said, don't make Star Trek five make Star Trek five, six, and seven, make a trilogy with the younger cast. And here's how it would look. And here's how it would go. And he listened and he appreciated it, but he said, I got a 25 year anniversary. I got to sell that. I've got this cast. I can't avoid that. I think I can make more in the box office with a 25 year anniversary than I can with starting over. And, you know, there was precedent. I wasn't coming up with some brand new idea. Back to the Future, other things had done that. We had done it successfully on, on Star Trek Three, but um, that was a marketing decision by the studio that they wanted to do the 25 year, and they felt like that could close it off nicely for a bunch of reasons. And that was Frank's decision. Uh, Harv drew a line in the sand about that movie. Um, expected me to stand on this on his side, and I didn't. And it caused a rift between us that wasn't complete, but it was it was tense afterwards. Uh, and we kissed and made up later. But you know, I think that he fully expected me to walk away uh, with him, and I. At that point in my career, I felt I couldn't do that. Yeah. He could. I couldn't. You had a family. You were at, uh, at that point uh, much earlier in your career. You know, yeah. it's interesting. As much as him and Ron Berry hated each other, 
they, they ended up pretty much doing the same thing. It's like Gene walked at the end of the third season of Star Trek because he had to because the, the you know he laid down an ultimatum and if he went back on his ultimatum he'd look you know, like he folded and he, yeah. he had no choice but to leave and it's sort of Harv did the same thing you know what do you do you give him an ultimatum and then you 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 basically say okay I'll do it anyway even though I told you I you know I'll walk if you don't do the academy yeah, years you lose all and, your and you were in a tough 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 spot I mean but you did I mean how how could you not you know yeah principle it was it was it was hard for i i you know he's gone but i I can't talk to him about it but you know he he didn't have to make that choice he was welcome to do star trek six he was it was not it was he was not being pushed out by any means yeah uh he was a valued member and yet he felt like if you don't want my idea now look i think there may be some other conversations happening with Sid Gannis or other executives at the studio that I wasn't privy to, that he was promised things that weren't coming through. So some of that could have played out. I don't know. Um, but that was a, a sad time for a, for a while. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, then I became the full-on producer of it. And then Nick came in with his partner, Stephen Charles Jaffe, who has become a good friend. And he, he and I produced it together and, um, you know, we made, we made the best of it. We made fun and, and, and tried to have some fun making that last one with the original cast to, uh, close it off in a way that everyone would respect as well as enjoy, uh, the story and the, and the characters. But the studio didn't make it easy for you. I mean, they gave you no. so little money to no. make that movie in so little time. I mean, it's amazing that you were able to pull it off. Now they were just sort of beating us with it. Now, so we had made the the the, the first movie cost over 40. We made Star Trek II at around 12, 12 and a half. Third one was 16. Fourth one's 21. Fifth one was high 20s. And the third, uh, sixth one was... I think in the low thirties, as I remember. Um, again, yeah, still not a lot of money to achieve what we wanted to, but Nick really elevated it with the casting uh, and the sort of old-fashioned drama of that trial with uh, Chris Plummer. And you know, I think what Nick's love of opera is what makes him so good at Star Trek. Star Trek mm-hmm. is opera. Mm-hmm. Star Trek is space opera. Uh, it's it's raw emotions. It's it's not in some ways it's not complex, but it's deep. And I think Nick was hitting his stride uh, with the undiscovered country, with Shakespeare, with Chris Plummer, with you know the world political situation uh, from '89. All of that stuff you know, is, it was rolling around with Nick. Um, and it was a pleasure to be around him and a pleasure to watch him work and to, you know, there's a simplicity and a complexity at the same time with Nick that uh, was, was fun to be around. Very smart. Very smart. How, how do you feel that he changed? Because obviously in 1982, he had only done one movie he had done time after time as a director. 
He was very Fabulous. nervous. He was very young. And by the time you get to Star Trek six, he had a few other movies under his belt. And, you know, he's a little more comfortable with who he is. Not that Nick's ever been uncomfortable with who he is, but, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> as, as, a, as a director, at least, you know, uh, he understands camera lenses and, and, and the cast. He knows how to, how to manage the, the cast because there's an art to managing these people as well because there's a lot of ego there. So um, how, how would he change? Do you think that affected uh, the movie at all in a, in a good or in a good or, or not good way? Well, I think, again, that opera came to a height. I think it, it, you know, the way he staged scenes, the way things played out at the dinner scene or, or the, uh, uh, the trial scene, I mean, plays out in high drama, which I think he was unfettered. He could do that. He could let that play in a way that was cinematic and, and operatic. And I don't think he had that freedom in Star Trek II at all. Right. Uh, I think he was constrained by that, but there's so many writers. I, I always, I always love in time after time that chase, you know, of HG Wells that turns into the Zodiac killer. And I remember when he comes through the time machine and he goes through the exhibit of HG Wells and his glasses have broken in the time travel and he's running out, but he can't see, and he thinks for a moment and he goes back to the desk in the display and the third drawer down pulls it out and there's the glasses. And I think that's a writer. That's a writer who thinks of that stuff. And Nick brought all of those powers to the sixth movie. The Klingon Empire has 50 years of life left to it. To offer Klingons a safe haven within Federation space is suicide. They're animals. Jim, they are dying. You, Captain Kirk, are to be our first olive branch. Me? The galaxy stands at a crossroads. This is the Starship Enterprise. We've been ordered to escort you to your meeting on Earth. Guess who's coming to dinner? I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. One warrior to another? Right. On the verge of peace. The undiscovered country, the future. On the brink of war. We come in peace, and you blatantly defy that we haven't fired. According to our databanks, we have. I shall blow you out of the stars. Now, the crew of the Starship Enterprise will not be the instigators of full-scale war on the eve of universal peace. They're coming about. Battle stations. Fights not to win battles. Incoming. Signal our surrender. Captain? We surrender. But to end them forever. We would consider an attempt to rescue them an act of war. There will never be a better time. This is Captain Sulu, USS Excelsior. We stand ready to assist you. This is fun. You do prefer it this way, as it was meant to be. Warrior to warrior. You cannot take much more of this! Cry havoc! And let's slip the dogs of war! Fire! Star Trek VI. 
the undiscovered country. Which I think made it, you know, made all the, it gave it subtext. It made, it made that stuff work at a level that I felt we hadn't made Star Trek movies work before. So I was very proud of, of, uh, of that movie. Again, we pulled off some amazing stuff with uh, the, the, the uh, weightless Klingon and blood. Great which, sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, the cleverness with which we shot that, you know, we looked at, if if the, the assassin shoots, we could get the stunt guy on a pull and pull him on a Western dolly, or we could ratchet him, or we could do all those things. And then we came up with the idea of this long hallway where he was being shot. Well, what if we took that long hallway and turned it on end? Mm, yeah. And now the guy is on a wire being pulled under crank so he can make it look faster. And his body covers the wire. There's no yeah. wire removal. You did a Kubrick on it. He did. And it was, it was so much fun to do those things. There's part of the weightless sequence in that where the wires are very visible. They're also visible in Star Trek V. We got good at this. The, the wires are visible in Star Trek VI during some of that weightless sequence, but the lines of the walls are going the same direction. Right. You don't know. You don't see them. They're there. <laughs> I couldn't pay. I couldn't spend the money on wire removal. Right, <laughs> but they're not where you're looking because we turned the set on its side, and the wires are coming. You're looking for wires here, right? Mm-hmm. No, wires are here. <laughs> Old stage tricks, but you know, we had fun doing that, and we had time to do that, and we had studio expertise to do that. That, you know, I remember when we had to, we couldn't fill the tank. Well. The tank on Star Trek Four, the blue screen tank in front of the big blue screen, right. was a parking lot. So we emptied the parking lot. Michael and Terry was my special effects supervisor. Gave him that first job as he went on to work with Spielberg and all that. Okay. Swept it, washed it down, and then he took a, a an iron rod and he just tested the asphalt all the way along. Well, in testing the asphalt, he discovered that the the it went through went through the asphalt in a couple of places. And he yeah. figured out that there was a 20 by 40 pit that had been covered over yeah. by a thin layer of asphalt. We dug it out and it certainly, it was, it was not on any studio map and all the tie downs were there. Everything was there. So we used that in the sequence. When it came time to turn the water on to fill the tank, nobody at the studio knew how to do it. They had to call Jimmy the plumber that retired three years ago because right. <laughs> Jimmy knew how to turn it on. Yeah. That kind of stuff is just wonderful and amazing and doesn't happen anymore. Um, well, that goes back just, to what we, were, what we were talking about earlier about the continuity of Hollywood. Yeah, and that yeah. at that point, it was starting to decay because oh, yeah. all, all, the, all the oldsters who knew how everything worked were retiring or passing away. Or, and one if, day we're hard. If it doesn't continue, then it's done. One day, Harvey and I were in his office. We were in the uh, a building just overlooking Lucy Park. I don't remember the name of the building anymore. Um, the Marx Brothers building, that's what it was called. Mm. Uh, and we were in, the, in Harv's office up in the corner, and I had the office adjoining. But we were there having a meeting, and we're, we had heard some rumbling in the, in the roof. And uh, 
they were checking out some leak or repairing something or whatever. So we're working there at Harv's desk and suddenly this guy's foot and leg come through the ceiling and all this plaster comes down on the desk. And the guy's like, you know, apologetic. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And he comes down and he has a bucket with him and he shows us what he was doing. He was trying to find the source of the leak. Well, he found the leak, but the way they had plugged it in the studio was they took a bucket where the leak was and they put newspaper in it and the, the bucket would fill up, but then it would evaporate oh and the God. leak was gone. We knew when it was happening because the paper the inside of the bucket was in the 40s. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. That's how they solved the problem. <laughs> A studio guy, they couldn't be they couldn't be bothered with trying to reshingle the roof. Yeah. Who's yeah. going to do that? They put a oh bucket and newspaper. Didn't make any noise. You wouldn't hear it. Unlikely the bucket would fill up, but it would certainly evaporate. That's and hilarious. they forgot about it. And when he got wow. close to it, he saw he touched on soft uh, plaster and his foot went through. Wow. Wow. <laughs> the old, old studio. I'll tell you another yeah. story. I'll tell you another story. While we were doing Star Trek, I think three, might have been four, but it was on stage nine. And they were shooting police squad across the way. Mm. And so we had started to get into, you know, stamping the scripts and coding them. Uh, we had this elaborate you know, it was, it was all about Star Wars started this. Everyone wanted security and all that. Sure. So uh, we had, I'd had somebody stamping the scripts for me. Uh, he still tortures me today because I made him do that. Um, but we actually were pretty clever. Talked to some people at NASA. We actually figured out a way to do this, that we made each script unique. So if your script, I could turn to page seven on your script and I could tell if it was you or not. Mm-hmm. And the way we did that was that we assigned a different star date to every employee. Uh, so page seven was different for every script. Wow. So you could retype the script and you'd retype the code back in. You didn't know. No one, you're not going to talk to the, the other mm-hmm. grips and say, what's the star date on page? You didn't do that. Uh, right. I, I'm going to put the star date in at the end in post. That's brilliant. Yeah. We'll do it. But everybody's star date was different. I could turn to the script and do that. So anyway, we went through uh, all that security. And so on the stage, we put up a sign that said, you know, without a security badge, no entry. And uh, so the police squad guys were across the way and they put up a sign on their stage that said, uh, you have to have a really big badge to come on our stage. And we don't, <laughs> and no Star Trek badges allowed. And so <laughs> we were like, well, wait a minute. Well, well no, 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 see, we'll put a bigger sign that this is, no, no, only Star Trek employees. It's, it's, it has to have an authorized badge. And then there's a bigger sign. It went back and forth for about three or four days until one day we came in and at call, they had a banner that covered the opposite stage that simply said, fuck Star Trek. <laughs> and the studio made him take it down before nine o'clock. Oh but God. we just had this wonderful banter. And that's the stuff that happens in our old studio lot. Yeah. With different crews. When there's actually productions there working. Yeah. 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 That doesn't happen anymore. I love the stories how people like uh, Robin Williams or Buzz Aldrin or or Jim Belushi would come by, just come by the Star Trek set because yeah. they were working. Obviously, Christopher Lloyd came back once or twice. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chris is great. <laughs> you know, and, Chris and, is great. Uh, he came by and, yeah. 
All those television actors came by, Henry Winkler. They all came by because stage nine, stage nine was the enterprise bridge from the motion picture, certainly through the time I was there in 91. So that was 13 years. And it it continued to be used as the bridge redone, et et cetera. That one stage was the bridge of the enterprise for 20 or 30 years. All the way up until like, what, 2003, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, David Lowry's opening on Academy Years became J.J.'s opening with that mailbox and cornfields and that, you know, flying through uh, with a crop duster. That was that was the Academy Years opening scene. If you read that script. Yeah, we have. We have. Yeah. In fact, we, 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 we talked to David. We were talking about and we might still do this putting together some kind of staged reading of his script. That'd be great. What a great um, and, idea. And, you know how Jason Reitman was doing all these readings yeah. down at the Ace? Yeah. And, and, and you know, this was right before the pandemic happened. So we were like, we should get a bunch of, you know, these rope in a bunch of, you know, our, our big actor friends and, and do a stage reading for charity of the script because it's a wonderful script. And obviously yeah. nothing will ever happen with it. And he loved that idea. So I, I you know, we promised still, him that we, we still may do it someday. We, yeah. That's that a great be, idea, guys. It'd be That's great, great, great to do. I think uh, you have a lot of fans, a lot of people would, would help out and participate. Yeah. And, and I would say, um, so when Star Trek six was over, you knew it was over. You, you pretty much, that was it. I mean, there was no going back and pitching the Academy years or coming up with another concept or, Hey, maybe they'll, maybe we can do one more farewell. It, I mean, it was over. I knew it was over with the cast. Uh, right. The studio had come to me to produce the TV series and I, I said to them, uh, I remember them coming. Um, um, who's the guy that eventually ran it? Um, Rick, Rick Berman. Rick Berman and John Symes were the yep. two guys that took me to lunch in the commissary. I remember the lunch very specifically. And I was flattered that they wanted me to come do it. And then, you know, afterwards, Berman said, well, I'm going to do it, you know, if he doesn't want to do it. I, I just felt like, I wasn't going to learn anything new. Mm. And I felt like I had given my life to five movies and I didn't want to be the Star Trek guy the rest of my life. I left after the Mm -hmm. first four X-Men movies for the same reason. The first four X-Men movies are the same movie. It's a guy that's got claws that come out of his hands, got a funny haircut, he kills people and has a dark past. The hair's different in each one. But it's the same. If you go back and watch the movies, they're the same movie. What am I going to learn? They're not going to pay me more. I'm not going to learn anything. I mean, I'm, you know, they need a new team. So I felt like for the TV series, they needed a new team. And I felt like there's no way the movies, they're going to take a break. It felt like it's over. If Academy Years ever happens, it's going to be sometime along. I don't think I can sit and wait for that. So, which, yeah. which makes me think of, of, a, of another question that is related to this. Um, now, obviously, you, you've done many more movies after, your, after the Star Trek experience. And what did the Star Trek movies teach you that mm. you later used in your other, mm. other films that you've produced? Well, I think one thing I touched on already in terms of X-Men is that when you're dealing with sort of uh, an intense fan base, like Star Trek, uh, you have to pay attention to the to the bullseye. You have to pay attention to the core audience. 
you have to satisfy what they want, but you can't do just what they want. If you deliver everything for the core audience, you won't have the budget to make a hundred million dollar movie for the core audience. So you've got to give them more. So, you know, the core audience says you can't kill Spock. Well, you can't, you can't blow up the enterprise. No, you can't. If you give them something better afterwards. And that to me, that worked out in X-Men where, uh, you know, you can't, you can't have uh, Wolverine. He's got to be five, two and built like a fire plug. You know, you can't hire Hugh Jackman. Who's he? Well, no one thinks about that now, but that's the heat we took in 99 when we hired this guy. And we made a joke about the uniform because they wanted somebody in yellow spandex. Yeah. Uh, and we make a joke about that in the movie yep. when they put uniforms on to say, mm-hmm. what were you expecting? Yellow spandex? That's right to the fans. Uh-huh. That's right to the heart of what the fans were asking about. And they loved it. Yeah. They loved that we heard them and that we, we know but we did something different. Yeah. And I think that's for the Fantastic Four, for uh, other movies where they have tremendous fan bases. I think you have to, you must pay attention to the bullseye. Yeah. You have to, but it'll test your storytelling skills and your ability to say, I understand what you want and I'm going to give you something close to what you want, but look what else I got. Yeah. I'm going to give you something yeah. else. I'm going to bring in a character. I'm going to bring in a scene. I'm going to bring in stuff you hadn't thought about and you didn't know it could be that good. Star Wars does that all the time. They do that all the time. So uh, that's the, one of the biggest things that I learned in terms of franchise. And I'm, I'm working with Louis Leterrier trying to uh, help him develop a comic book into a, a television series. And it's the same kind of thing. You know, uh, a revered black sad, a revered, Spanish comic in Europe. I love well what known. he did with Lupin. I thought he did his oh, episodes yeah. of Lupin are fantastic. I yeah, mean, even Clash great. of the Titans. I think, uh, you know, I, I he's 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 super. T- he's such a great visual stylist. So even when something oh, like yeah. Clash of the Titans is super dopey, it's like really a fun movie, and he's just yeah. a fantastic director. So I'm so interested in seeing what you do. And I mean, you you've made so many interesting choices in your career because you've moved from huge budget movies to smaller films. I mean, you, it, it seems like you're always trying to keep yourself interested and not lose that passion because you can't pigeonhole you, you know, it's, it's, it's constantly You got to have evolving. fun. You, you, it, look, it's got to be, I just finished with Michael Mann uh, on a TV pilot in Tokyo, you know, couldn't be any harder shooting yeah, in Tokyo yeah. during COVID yeah, yeah. and with Michael Mann. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? I learned a ton. We made it fun. Um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out. It's uh, Ansel Elgort and Ken Watanabe based on a book for HBO Max. Um, yeah, I did that because it's interesting and I'm going to learn something. And I'm mm-hmm. not at the front end of my career by any means, but I love learning new stuff. I'm talking to other companies now about virtual production, the way they do on Mandalorian. With the and LED I think screens, I can, yeah. Yeah, I, the volumes, mm-hmm. volume production, yeah. virtual production. I think I, I can add something to that. And that's, that's exciting. Um, so there's lots of good stuff out there. And I think it's about keeping fresh. It's about telling stories. It's about what the audience wants to see. And yeah, I mean, I learned a lot during Star Trek. And about I learned a lot from Harv, how to be a statesman, how to deal with actors and directors, 
how to do that with how to give everyone worth and value. There's a great, there's an, there's a right way to fire somebody and the right way to hire somebody. And you got to do that with respect and, and give crew and, and cast the ability to make their contributions. I'm not down their throat. I don't tell the prop guy what he's got to do, yeah. you know, service the director and you got a budget and don't be late, but otherwise knock yourself out, have fun. I mean, not a lot of guys do that. They want to tell them, no, you got to buy this kind of knife. And you, and you can only use this vendor and you can only do what? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Have fun with it. You know, let them exhibit their creativity in a way that helps the story and tells the story. Every, every one of those crew members is a storyteller. And I learned that with Harv and I learned that on Star Trek. And um, I was very fortunate, very honored to be a part of that. And I'm proud of uh, all of those movies. I'm proud of all my children. So now you know I made another movie with Bill. Uh, oh, you did Shooter, the uh, the um, shot, right? The uh, the one with the uh, the paintballing. <laughs> yes, Shooter be shot, and uh, you know we made it. I really made the movie. Bill was great to come in for a week and do it. Made it for half a million dollars with Panavision cameras in something called you know Blockbuster Video and in theaters, and. Uh, I did it just to sort of prove a point that you can make a movie at any price. It's not great, but Bill was fun and fun to be around. And yeah. uh, he was a rock star to come in and, and help us for a week. So game for anything, Bill, man. Yeah. Bill's yeah. Bill's a champ. He's I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of how he continues to reinvent himself uh, from Priceline to, you know, I don't know what he's doing. He's probably recording another album as we speak. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you're, prob- you're not wrong you're probably well, th- this has been an absolute delight ralph i'm so i'm so glad that you could find the time uh Thank to you. talk to us and i'll tell you as a as a crime story fan i can't wait to watch your michael mann uh uh, right. uh TV series um but this is this is really a, a delight what great stories and uh just and passion and that's that's what it's all about so thank you great thank you very thank much you so for much. inviting me Thank you. And look, let's do it again. Let's keep talking about it. It'd be fun to uh, keep diving in and seeing other stuff. I actually have so funny, again, not at the front of my career, at the back end. I have storyboards and illustrations and props and all sorts of shit from these movies <laughs> that at some point I'm going to unload for charity or my retirement or whatever. So <laughs> that's all. that's all coming. I have, you know, even... I have, uh, I don't have an up here. Let's see. I've got, um, I don't know if you can see this. <laughs> this is the, one of the, one of the. Um, oh yes, the cutaway. Oh yeah. The cutaway of the Enterprise. I have two of these. This one's just wrapped up. The other one's in another part of the house. I have um, uh, the Japanese poster of Wrath of Khan. Nice. I've got, um, what do I have here? Lots of little stuff. I've got the undiscovered country up here in the wall. In the years when, in the years when the the actors would um, sign posters, sure, I have some of that stuff. So, kind of fun to. Uh, We're gonna have to do the whole eBay episode with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we, we will definitely return to this place again. This is great. And I, I, I let's definitely do it again. So that that's cool. That's, and so many of your films we didn't even talk about. So, you know, I'd love to go be, beyond Star Trek Anytime. as well. So we'll, we'll do that. So great, Ralph. Right, Thank guys, you so again. Much. We appreciate it. Yep. All right. Same here. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. See? I did not lie. <laughs> that was a great show. How you feeling, Darren? How how, how you feeling from your Johnson Johnson shot? I'm I'm you got hope, the chills I, you know, yet. I feel young, as when the world was new. <laughs> well, not quite I, that I, young, but uh, yeah, I'm 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 doing okay. I'm doing okay. So now, when when is it supposed to be at peak efficiency? In about a week or two weeks? Oh, it, they they said like uh, you know within uh, six or seven days. So fantastic. Like yeah, I'm getting my second shot um in two weeks i can't wait i i'm 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 so excited <laughs> and i just <laughs> and can't just hide it can't hide it yet yeah we, and we, i we i hope our listeners are, are get are all getting uh getting their shots none of this nonsense anti-vax nonsense um you know it's so important so important to get your vaccine and uh to protect yourself and to protect those around you and i will say even, that my my 5g reception is way better now <laughs> you mean Bill Gates is able to follow you around now? Oh my God, who believes this nonsense? God, oh, it's so crazy. Anyway, um, but uh, boy, I'm really, really happy with the Ralph Winter. I, I do feel um, that we are leaving a record behind us that's significant in terms of chronicling Star Trek in a way, you know, I never anticipated with the, that with this podcast. I mean, I always... You know, we did it because, you know, 430 movie was successful and we thought it'd be fun to do. We thought, thought it'd it be, be fun, fun to do a, to pod. do a podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and uh, but, you know, now two and a half years on, three years, whatever it is. Almost three. Like yeah. We're leaving behind this really extraordinary record of Star Trek. I like to think uh, so. And it's, it's, it's something that isn't really being covered by anyone else. And I, I like that. There was this thing the other day called uh, First Contact Day, some kind yeah. of marketing gimmick to promote Star Trek. And, you know, it's sort of like the May the, it was like, you know, May, like the the May, May, the, May the 4th yeah, be with you. May the 4th be with you. Yeah, it was May the 4th be with you. And, you know, I didn't really follow much what, what was going on other than that, um, I guess they showed like uh, previews of some of the new shows and sure. stuff. But it's like, I don't know, there was some key art. And I mean, Shatner was like a postage stamp on it and Leonard wasn't even on it. Um, it's it's like I, it's like it's like decoding uh, on your Ovaltine uh, secret agent ring, uh, you know, a crummy commercial. That's all it was. Right. And so I'm just so proud that we can. And it's not just the original. Obviously, everyone knows, who listens to the show on a regular basis knows how our passion for the original show. But I think what we've been able to do in terms of, you know, chronicling the history of Next Gen and and, and Voyager and Enterprise, um, you know, the, the, the vintage track series has really been um you know it's really been great because i mean and to help give the continuity to it you know yes. throughout the years in its various incarnations and and, con and context and you know also um if you're not already listening to it i highly encourage you to listen to our our new sister podcast the uh Trexperts briefing room just so you're clear that's a separate podcast a separate podcast called, we had it on this Trex feed for a while to get but you excited about it's it. It's separate. Yeah, separate it's called Trexpert's Briefing Room. Yes. So when we say, listen to Trexpert's <laughs> Briefing Room, 
It means it's a different Trexpert's briefing room, not in Glorious Trexpert, and expect to find it here. This is not here. <laughs> it's on the Trexpert's briefing room feed. So each week we have commentary from a different Star Trek series with a different notable. And we've had some great episodes. Ashley Miller talking about Shades of Grey. We had uh, David Goodman recently talking about The Apple. Um, we have some excellent episodes coming up that I know because we've already recorded them. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert. And, uh, uh, <laughs> And, and, and we're going to continue to do that because we're having a ton of fun. I think it's safe to say that the Trexpert's briefing room has uh, some surprises in store for them. I, I think so. <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to continue to occasionally drop them on this feed because yeah. we can. Because when we can. When they're fun. When they're, when they're fun, when they're particularly significant. You know, we might do it, you know, just because some people haven't gotten the memo that there's a separate <laughs> podcast called Trexpert's Briefing Room. I'm not talking about anyone specific. No. Well, I could, who was desperately searching for his episode of Trexpert's Briefing Room and couldn't find it on the Inglorious Trexpert's feed, even though we've made it very clear that it's a separate podcast. It'll be fine. So anyway, it will indeed. So th- again, a, a true delight. Darren, I hope you're feeling better. You know what would really help that arm of yours? Chicken sandwich and coffee. My chicken sandwich and coffee. From Cantor's. And a, and a triple. And a, and a triple. And, uh, or, or, you know, or just like, you know, maybe some disco fries. I can't eat that anymore. I can't eat that anymore. <laughs> you know, disco fries, which is the gravy and the cheese. I, I, you know, it's like, it just, like, it happened the last couple of months. It's like, I feel really sick when I eat that stuff. And it's, well, it's you just it's, need to eat more of it. No, I can't. Get your body even used I, to it again. Even, you know, <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, I think the problem is, over the last year, it's just like, you know, obviously I went to shoot the show in Europe for a couple months, but I just haven't been walking enough. I haven't been getting out enough. Yeah. I got to, you know, I'm, I'm losing my, you know, it just, you got to get out and walk and do things and do it, you know, get out of your parents' basement. Do it while we still have time. <laughs> anyway, well, look, this is fun. We'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. You can follow us on, um, Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook and Inglorious Track, Inglorious Trexperts. Um, we want a, sp- a special thanks to our associate producers, Zach Raggetts and Peter Holmstrom, and especially our sound engineer, the great Bill Ritter, who makes us so great, sounds so great, even during a pandemic. And also um, our producer, Natalie Miscali. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, and of course, executive producer, Dean Devlin. Uh, it's really, uh, it, it's really, it's really been great. And of course we encourage you to listen to our new sister podcast, Trexpert's Briefing Room, uh, which is, uh, also available on Fridays. Although I have to think about it, if it makes sense to drop both episodes on the same day. Probably not. Uh, but probably that's not. Okay. So I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to see about that. Maybe, but, maybe know. the briefing room is Thursdays. Who knows? Yeah. And then, by the way, we're running out of ideas for shows. So if you have, you know, shows you want to suggest. Oh, posh. Um, we aren't running out of ideas. Let, it, let, it, let, it, let us. We let haven't us run know. out now. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's I guess that's true. Um, and then what else do we talk about? The Oh, listen to our sister podcast. Of course, the great uh, best movies never made. They've been doing some fantastic shows recently. They're always doing fantastic shows. And uh, uh, Josh Miller and uh, Steven Scarlatta, all about films that never saw the light of projector bulb. And of course, uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, check out uh, The Rebel and the Rogue. And 430 Movies can be back, if it's not already, at the 430 Movie 
where we curate a fantasy theme week of classic films. And that's a great show. If you're not already listening to it, you should check that out. I think you'll really enjoy it. And of course, if you want to watch any of these shows, download the Electric Now streaming app. It's free. And you can watch all our video podcasts for free on Electric Now um, and hundreds of hours of great entertainment, including episodes of Librarians and, and Leverage from the Electric Library. And at least 50 or so hours of us just yakking. At least, at least. <laughs> so anyway, I'm hungry. I want to go have dinner. Darren, I think probably wants to lie down. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna say goodbye from the bridge of the Starship Trexperts from one what? of the longest episodes we've ever done. It was a guest. Oh, oh yeah, was yeah. It, we're 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 pushing uh, an hour and forty minutes. Well, you couldn't stop interviewing him in the middle. Like, oh, we're at no. Star Trek Four. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Next time, uh, come back. Yeah, <laughs> you'll come back now. You hear, but um, but but uh, you know, I, I wanted to make sure, and and it was funny because we didn't really get to cover, you know, his post Star Trek career. Yeah, uh, but the one the one thing I did know, and I'm glad we did, is I really wanted to cover the road before he worked on Star Trek Two, yeah. working what it was like to work at Paramount. Yeah, you know, in the, in the early seventies, and that was in fascinating. Golden, golden era of TV. Because nobody asked him about that stuff. You know, they yeah. go right to Star Trek, and I that was so interesting. I agree. It's what we talked about. Nobody cares about Hollywood history anymore. Wow. And it's like, we're capturing these moments that are, you know, like tears in the rain. They're gone. And uh, as, as we must be now, because yeah, okay. we have to go. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. And on that note, uh, keep on trekking uh, ingloriously, of course. Engage. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.